doing a little bit different with these hard questions. We only did a three-week series. We've been talking apologetics, but we're going a little bit of a different route this morning and this week. But I wonder, and I, I probably not wonder, you've, you've had this. You ever have a friend that is, it's that friend that, like, it, they're the ones that are always going to make the bad decision. Seems like it. Like, if they have option A and option B, and option B is not good as option A, option B might be the, the one that's like a, like, like everyone else sees it and goes, don't do option B. They're the one that's going to go, I'm going to try it out. Like, I think it might work. And if you've ever had a friend like that, you know, they can, they can be difficult because you feel like you're parenting them or laying with them. If you don't have a friend like that, you have teenagers. So there's that, right? I mean, that, that's about the story of their life. I had a kid that I mentored several years ago. He's now a pastor, but uh, he would come into my office. I officed right by the school, and so he could come in during free periods. And he'd come in, and it became such a regular routine, we named it Good Idea, Bad Idea. And he'd come into my office, and he'd sit down, and go, okay, let me run something by you. A good idea, bad idea. And he would throw out the scenario, and by and large, there were almost always bad ideas. One of them was this. He was dating a girl. He was a, maybe a senior in high school. She was, I think, a junior in high school. Uh, they'd been dating since, like, freshman or sophomore year. They'd been dating for two or three years. And he comes in, he says, hey, have you met so-and-so? There's a new girl that just moved to our school. And I said, yeah, yeah, I met her, talked to her. And he said, well, homecoming's coming up. And she doesn't know anybody. And so I was thinking, like, since she doesn't know anybody, that I might just uh, take her to homecoming instead of taking my girlfriend at the time of two or three years. Yeah. And he says, so, I mean, I, I know... What do, you, what do you think, good idea or bad idea? And I said, well, oh, let me ask you a question. Uh, his, his girlfriend, who's now his wife, named Abby, I said, do you like Abby? He said, well, yeah. So would you say that you love Abby? And he said, well, yeah. I said, that is a terrible idea, man. Like, no, what, I, and in my mind, I'm thinking, who even thinks like this, right? And so he didn't. Thank goodness, and so may, I might have actually been the catalyst for them getting married one day. Who knows what happened had I not leaned in. They should, like, name one of their children after me. I think I saved their future marriage. <laughs> that, that's a funny story, but if you have people in your life that, that are, are, are not asking you a good idea, bad idea, but they have already started down the path of bad idea, it puts us oftentimes as a friend into a dilemma. Now, for a, a message for teenagers... This may hit a little closer to home than to parents because teenagers are living in a world of, of immaturity, of bad decision-making or not as good decision-making, hopefully as maturer adults. And they're also in a place where friendships, because of biology, because peer pressure and things like that, that friendships tend to be a little bit more important uh, to them at their stage of life than for us as adults who now have jobs and maybe a spouse and, and things like that. So we really will lean in this week with them. But I think it's an apropos conversation for us to have too because we've had friends along the way. It might be a family member. It could be a brother, a sister, a neighbor that, that we see going the wrong direction and we get caught in this dilemma of what do I say and how do I say it? When we started the Hard Question series a couple weeks ago and well back when we first started talking about it, we were leaning into apologetics, and that's why we handled and had Chad come in and talk about, can I really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Because, you know, if, if you grew up in the church, that sounds totally normal. 
If you, if you didn't grow up in the church and somebody says, well, I believe in Jesus, and they go, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher, I like that. And then you go, well, you know, actually he was God, and he died, and three days after he died in a tomb, he was resurrected. That, 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 that sounds kind of crazy to somebody that did not grow up in a church culture. And so Chad helped us walk through that apologetic question. Last week we handled, does a loving God really send people to hell? That's a great apologetic question. This week, we were going to try to do a panel with some local apologists and do some questions, and we just couldn't get that all worked out. So I went back to our teenagers who were on the ministry team who came up with those questions and came up with the posters and came up with logos and all that. And I said, you tell me, what apologetic questions are you and your friends wrestling with? And they threw out a couple of ideas. They threw out, like, predestination. And I said, well, okay, yeah, the, the three of you on the ministry team are probably dealing with that. But most seventh graders are going, pre-who? Like, what? We'll talk about that. But this question came up over and over and over again in a couple of different ways, shapes, and forms. But it was this, what do I do when I have a friend that's headed the wrong direction? What do I say to him? How do I respond? And so I even threw it out there. I said, that's really not really in the apologetics kind of discussion that we're doing. But when you have about six or seven kids on a ministry team and the vast majority of them on their own say, this is a question that I'm wrestling with and it's a hard question, so said, okay, we're going we're gonna to dive in. Again, probably more for them than us, but you might have somebody. I mean, just imagine, I was trying to think from an adult perspective. You have a friend that you've, you, you've spent years with, you, you've raised kids together, and you, you would say they're one of my closest friends, but what you've noticed is that they tend to be drinking so much that they're getting drunk on a regular basis. Now, let me put this kind of question for us as parents. You know, what the, you know what the Bible says about drinking, right? It's a little bit different than what traditional Baptists say about drinking. It just is. Traditional Baptists say if you touch it, you'll go to hell. If you walk down the aisle in the grocery store where alcohol is present, you will burn for eternity. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus, Jesus at a wedding turned water into wine and, 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 and here's what Baptists do. This is great. Baptists go, well, yeah, but it was like this watered-down wine. It's not like the wine we had in, in our day. But if you read the rest of the passage, the people at the wedding go, man, you brought out the best stuff at the end. So Jesus made some good wine. Paul told Timothy, have a little wine. Good for you. And as Baptists, we just go, eh, I'm going to scratch that out. I don't know what to do with that. But the scripture is clear. The scripture is clear that drunkenness is a sin. Very clear. Uh, not, not a question about it. Whereas alcohol is a sinful, no. But like many things, in excess, it becomes something that separates us from God. And so you have this friend that maybe you used to drink together. You, may, you, know, you go out and, uh, when you, at a restaurant, you have a glass of wine, they have a glass of wine. But, but you realize that, that it's becoming two and three glasses of wine. You realize that when you see them at the football game, you sit down that like, I think they might be inebriated right now, cheering for the wrong team. They don't know who's on offense, who's on defense. That's a sign. And, and, and we wrestle through some emotions when that happens. We watch this friend, and maybe it's somebody that, that says that they're following Christ. And we go, man, say they're following Christ, but I know what the Scripture says about being drunk, and this is becoming an ongoing thing for you. We get, we get caught in this, what do I do? And there, there's this whole set of emotions for us. Sometimes we, we start off by just making a joke about it, trying to like 
trying to get the, the, the truth out there without sounding like their parent. You know, we go, hey, yeah, you might have had a little too much to drink tonight. Ha, ha, ha. And then it continues to go, and finally, you go, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to have a conversation because I care about this person. And you have the conversation with them. You go, man, hey, I know. Let's talk about what's going on in your life because there's something probably that has been the catalyst to this change in behavior. So let's talk about that. What's going on? And, and they kind of are dismissive and nothing happens. And then the feelings of like fear start to sink in. Because then, then it's like, well, do I keep talking about it? If I keep talking about it, I, I might damage this relationship. I mean, we might not be close friends and we've got a lot of history. And so now I'm afraid to say anything. The feelings of rejection, because you have said something, but it didn't change anything, and now you're thinking, are we, are we even really that, that close? Maybe fear for them of what is coming next because you see the path spiraling, spiraling the wrong direction. It's difficult for us. What do we do? How do we lean in? For some of us as parents, we even see teenagers, our own children, making decisions, and we wrestle with what do I say and how do I say it? There's fear there. Some of us, though, it's the other end, right? You're just, you're really good at judgment, right? That's, that's probably where I land more often. Like, you have a, uh, maybe a different friend change the scenario, and you know that there's some tension at home, there's been some marriage issues, things like that, and you notice your friend that she's, she's talking about some guy at the office quite a bit. They, you, you, she talks about going to lunch with him, just the two of them. And normally that may not have raised a red flag, but just in the way she says it, and you know things are going at home, you start to hear some terminology that sounds like, like you're not even sure that there's an affair of anything physical, but emotionally it seems like it's going the, the wrong direction, and, and you're offended by it, like judgmental. And you're like, I can't believe she would even do that. Like that is, I can't believe she would do that to her, her husband and to her kids. And you don't even, you're not fearful. You have a whole different range of emotions. You're judgmental. And you're like, she knows better. If she doesn't know better, I'm, I'm not, I'm distancing myself from her because she is, she is headed down the wrong path. And we just like cut that relationship off. We got to figure out how to walk with people who are walking away from the Lord while we're trying to walk towards the Lord and not do it in a way where fear or judgmental mentality Keep us from being gospel-centered people for them. Now, you can go to the Bible, and Jesus has, Jesus has conflict all the time with people. Jesus is put in situations that would make us uncomfortable. We could go to a bunch of those. But I want us this week to go to John chapter 1. We're not going to look at some circumstances that Jesus faced, but rather we're going to look at who Jesus is in his character and his nature. So I want you to go to John chapter 1. And the Apostle John has written this. And in chapter 1, he, you, you can read all of chapter 1. It's great. It really gives this theological picture of who Jesus is. He calls Jesus the Word to the capital W. If you read that, and that's confusing. He's talking about Jesus. But in verse 14, he says something pretty incredible. He says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was in heaven, and he left heaven, took bodily form flesh bone brain organs and he dwelt among us he walked with us he he did everything that you and i've done 
And John says, and we have seen his glory, God's glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. And then look how he describes Jesus. Full of grace and truth. We can look at how Jesus responded to people, but what you'll find out is when we open up passages of Scripture and we read Jesus in conflict or we read Jesus with people who may not, may not have been the best of character, that Jesus lived a life that came out of this description that John gave him, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now those are words that we use a lot. We may not think a lot about though. So the theologian definition of grace is this. And if you're a note taker, write this down. You can like put it into your mind for helping understand grace. Grace is simply this. It's unmerited favor. It's unearned goodness. If you've earned it, it's not, it's not grace. If you've earned it, you've earned it. Grace is this favor that comes when you, don't, you shouldn't have got it. There's a story of these three American college kids. They were living in Italy on one of those study abroads. And they were all living together in the same place. I think they had traveled there together. And, uh, you know, there's safety in numbers and safety in, like, knowing each other. And we all speak the language. And they went down from the little apartment that they were staying in, went to the market, had, hadn't been in Italy very long, got some pasta. They were going up to make a lunch uh, for each other and lit the kitchen on fire. <coughs> and when the firefighters came, what they discovered is these three Americans had started cooking the pasta with no water. So, lesson number one, make sure your kids know how to cook pasta, right? And so, catch, didn't destroy the apartment, destroyed lots of the furniture in the kitchen, things like that, they got it put out. And so as the firefighters are there getting the explanation, they're saying, here's what we did, we just didn't know. They became the laughing stock of kind of the Italian press in and around their city. As the story got out, and it's just playing into the stereotype of stupid Americans, right? Now, what they earned was scorn. Because it was, it was that's dumb. Like, Google it. Like, if you don't know how to cook spaghetti. But a famous chef that lived right near the area heard about the story. And he later told the newspaper, he said, I know people were making fun of him, but I just thought we should be different. He took all three of the American college students and gave them a four-hour culinary class of how to cook Italian food. That's pretty cool, right? And you know what that is? Unmerited favor. It's grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. There wasn't anything they should have gotten, but this chef, in a moment of grace, said, you know what? I'm going to pour out favor on the stupid Americans, and I'm going to give them grace. Jesus was full of that. Jesus was full of grace, but Jesus was also full of truth. You don't have to flip there, but a couple chapters later in John 4, we read this story where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman and she's drawing water at a well. There's, you've heard the story before, I'm sure, because there's so many uh, great sermons that come out of John chapter 4. But this woman, she's there at noon at the well. What we know because she's there at noon is that she is the laughingstock of the rest of the ladies we find out later it's because of her sexual practices and, and her relationship issues. She doesn't hang out with the rest of them. When they come in the morning to get water, she doesn't go with them. She goes in the heat of day. Jesus, the disciples show up. The disciples go into town to get food. Jesus is there. He asks this woman, hey, can I get some water? And she says, realizing he's a rabbi, how, why in the world are you talking to me? Like, why, how are you asking for what one? You're a man, I'm a woman too. You're, you're a rabbi. 
And Jesus gets into a theological discussion. He says, if, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for living water. And they go through this conversation. And Jesus says this to her. He says, why don't you go and grab your husband? And she says, basically, I'm not married. And Jesus says, yeah, I know you've had five husbands. You've had five men in your life. And she's astounded. This, how, how do you know that? And that has, moves them into a conversation that ends with her having this conversation about faith and, and where does God exist and who he is. That she goes into her town and she actually tells everybody, hey, you've got to come meet Jesus. And the town comes out and meets Jesus. And, and, and many people's lives are transformed. But what you see in John 4 is a picture, and you see it everywhere, is a picture of grace and truth. If Jesus didn't have grace, he would have never talked to the woman that was a sinner. <coughs> Jesus didn't have grace, he would not have lovingly uh, spent time with her. But at the same time, he was very truthful. I mean, he called it what it was. He said, yes, I know you don't have a husband because you've got some sexual and some relationship issues that, that, that are, are destroying your life. But in the way that Jesus said it, and we don't get the, the whole gist of the story, but here's what we know. In the way that Jesus said truth, he said it so gracefully that she fell in love with him. And she goes back into her town and says, you've got to come see this guy. So Jesus had this perfect blend because it was his character and his nature of being grace, being full of unmerited favor, but also speaking truth and speaking truth very clearly. See, when you have all grace and no truth, you have this namby-pamby universalist idea. You, you know what you do when you have all grace and no truth? This is going to sound harsh, but it really is. You simply just love people to hell. That's what, that's what all grace and no truth is. All grace and no truth goes, oh, I, I know you believe that or I know you're doing that, but you know what? You do you. I, I'm not going to say anything about it because you, know, you believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. I know that this is, I believe truth, but we never say it. We, we, we gracefully love people to hell. And really, really, that's not loving people, but that's what we think we're doing. Truth, on the other hand, with no grace is just harsh. On Wednesday night, I'm going to try this. I don't know if it's going to work. I may lose the whole audience. But just to illustrate so they can get a picture of it, I'm not going to do this to you guys because uh, you, you might throw things back. But I've got some Nerf footballs that I'm turning into truth bombs. And I'm going to start pegging kids in the audience. It's going to be so awesome. You throw them back. So I don't, well, they might throw them back too, but I can probably dodge theirs. But that's what we do, right? We, we, we have these truth bombs. The person that has all truth and no grace. Jesus, if Jesus is all truth and no grace, he walks up to the, walks up to the uh, well with the ladies there and he's like, Hey, filthy woman, let me tell you this. You've slept with more people than anybody in your city. You know what? You know why nobody's out here with you? You know why you come at noon? Because you're, you're basically a prostitute. And then she would go, where do I find this living water? Right, right? It wouldn't happen. Because it would have been a truth bomb. And some of us, some of us do that. And so we, 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 there's this continuum. We can't be all grace. We can't be all truth. We have to be this perfect, and it's not 50% of each. It's 100% of each, like Jesus was, fully graceful and fully truthful. Now, it was a part of Jesus' nature and character, because he was God. For us, we've got to figure out how we balance that and what that looks like. So let, let me give us some, some things that we can do. Because if you've got people in your life that you know 
you know aren't where they're supposed to be. You know they're going down the path that is walking further away from God. And let me just back up for a second. Using two illustrations I gave you guys, maybe a friend who's got issues that's causing them to drink so much they get drunk on a regular basis, or issues that are causing them to, to seek after a relationship that's not a part of their marriage relationship. The reason why you say something full of grace and full of truth is because you love that person. It's not because you're the morality police. It's not because they're in your small group and if people in the community find out that this person is in your small group, they're never going to come to your small group and you're embarrassed by it. It's because you love them so much that you go, you know what? I know that God has a better plan for you than to be drunk six nights a week. And I know that God has a better plan for you in your marriage than for you to be chasing after this other guy. Yeah, you're going to have to work through some marriage issues, but at the end, the redemptive story is going to be better because I love you, I want you to have that. that that's why we, we step in and engage. That's why we can't, as a believer, just walk away and pretend like the people that are in our life that are going the wrong direction, that we can just ignore them. We're called to that. We're called to do it with grace and truth. So I want to give you just four things to think through. Very, very easy, kind of, makes, it'll make sense. The first thing we have to do when you have people like that, and you can start right now, is we have to start praying for those people. Because here's the deal. It's not on you. You cannot change someone else's heart. And that's what all of these issues, whether it's drunkenness, adultery, lying, cheating on taxes, all of those things are, are, are heart issues. And you don't change people's heart, the Holy Spirit does. But here's what we know. If you're concerned about your friend, you're concerned about your teenager, you're concerned about a brother, a spouse, whatever, as much as you're concerned about that person and love them, God loves them even more than you do. God, God wants them back even more than you do. And so what we do is we know that God is already working plans because God is working at all times. There's a spiritual war going on and God is engaged in trying to woo that person back. And as we start praying, we start praying and God starts using us as a part of his plan rather than us trying to use God for a part of our plan. So we start saying, Lord, here's what's going on. But here, here's what we have to think about. We've got to you know, cry out to God on a regular basis. And, and I use that, that phrase, cry out, because that's really what we've, we've got to do. Think of it this way. If you had a friend that had been taken, like Liam Neeson taken, you know, kidnapped, and I had the ability to rescue them, you would not approach me like we approach God often and go, Brett, uh, I just ask that you would keep them from harm's way. And, and Brett, I, I just want to ask that, uh, that, that you would intervene in a way that uh, might bring them back. You, if it was somebody you loved, you care about, I mean, you would come with, with deep, hey, here's what I know. They were over here and they went this way. I think the guys looked like this and here's the vehicle and, and you'd, be, you'd be giving me specifics, you'd be giving me details. And, and <clears throat> if you didn't see me moving at the rate of speed at which you wanted, which you may or may not see God moving at the rate of speed that you want, he may be, you just don't see it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't two days later, three days later, continue to go and Lord, and Lord or, or say, and Brett, I just want to ask one more time that you would keep, keep my friend safe. You'd be crying out. You'd be, you'd be going, do something. How, how do I get involved? Who else do you want me to talk to? Tell me what to do. But, but we look at, at our friends that have been kidnapped. That's literally, they have been. They've been taken by the enemy. Their minds captivated. 
their hearts turn from God and towards themselves. And our prayer life is like, Lord, I just pray that you'd put a hedge of protection around them. They don't need a hedge of protection. They need the living Savior to intervene in their life and he might use you to do it. And we have to be serious about this. So when we say start by praying, we're, not, we're talking about on your knees, crying out to God, gathering other people that know. You don't need to gather people that don't know because it's not gossip, it's prayer. But people who know what's going on say, hey, we're committing to pray and to love and to reach out. Here's the second thing. You gotta be willing to fight for the friendship. For sure in the teenage world, but in the adult world too. Maybe, maybe even more so in the adult world. Because teenagers inherently don't want to lose the friendship. Because they're afraid that if they lose that friendship, they're going to be all alone. For adults who work 50 or 60 hours a week and try to watch a football game in your spare time, have to go to the grocery store, have to clean house. Like, let's be honest, we could probably stand to lose a few friends, right? I mean, like, with our time, we're like, oh, man, yeah. We're not hanging out anymore, but my, my schedule's got a lot more free. So it's easier for us maybe not to fight for the friendship. Here's what will happen, though. And this is, this is a, a, a phrase we use in the youth ministry a lot. We talk about shared stories. You hear me say this a lot. Relationships are all developed around shared stories. That's why your teenagers have different friends in 10th grade than they did in 8th grade. Because when they got to high school, they started doing different things. One went to choir, one went to band, one went to cheerleading or whatever and and they're sharing stories with other circles of people and so the teenager interprets that as these friends hate me now they don't hate you they think you hate them you just have different stories that you're sharing that's why we say when we do things like merry christmas with love coming up in december or trips we say man we want parents to be involved we want you to go because it's shared stories that you and your kids have jay and i go to football games almost every friday night we have a, a long-time relationship. We've shared so much stories, and we drive and we talk about funny things that happened years past. It, it builds our relationship. So if we're going to fight for the friendship, what normally happens is the friend that starts going the wrong direction starts to share stories with other people who are going the wrong direction. Because if they're going the wrong like, like if, I'll use the drinking example, if they're drunk on a regular basis, they start to feel uncomfortable at the women's Bible study. Because there's conviction. There might be judgment if they came drunk. You know, who knows? But that, that, so they stop hanging around that group and they start hanging around people who affirm the decisions they're making. And then what happens is, here you are, Eve, as an adult, you have a relationship and you're having less and less shared stories. The relationship is drifting apart. But if you are going to engage them with grace and truth, we have to fight for the friendship. That, may, that doesn't mean like, well, okay, not cooking dinner tonight, family. I'm, I'm going to happy hour to be fighting for a friendship. That's not what it means. What, what it means is, is actively engaging that friend and saying, hey, can you come over, come over to dinner at our house? Hey, let's go to the movie. Hey, meet me for lunch. And you find some other times where you can share stories to fight for that friendship so that you can be the person who speaks truth with grace. Here's the third thing. We have to lovingly tell the truth. See, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Just, just fighting for the friendship doesn't do a whole lot. Because we love them, we have to tell the truth. We have to say, hey, you're going the wrong direction. Now, guys, it's Sunday. It's football Sunday. So I'm going to show you an illustration real quick. Some of you will recognize. But I'm going to use this illustration. It's a football illustration. 
about somebody going the wrong way, but there's actually two. There's a clip. They'll, they'll run together. But I want you to watch this. I think it's number five. The number five worst play of all time. Jim Marshall's long way run. Is there anything worse than watching Jim Marshall run the wrong way in an NFL game? There's nothing worse than that. Nothing. There's no play ever. You can't even find a play more humiliating than that play. Stops, throws, completes it to Kilmer up at the 30-yard line. Kilmer driving for the first down, loses the football. I'm always rooting for the D lineman who picks up the fumble. Seeing the ball loose and seeing the goalpost kind of triggered, you know, pick it up and run. It's picked up by Jim Marshall, who's running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way. And he's running it into the end zone the wrong way. Thinks he scored a touchdown. He had scored a safety. How foolish did he feel when he got in the end zone and turned around waiting for his teammates to mob him? And they're like, you idiot, what have you done? Jim. You ran the wrong way. One of the 49er players came up and, and said, Thanks, Jim. Uh, you knew right away. You really messed up this time. Now, it happened in the 20s as well. Watch this. Jim Marshall wrong way run is brutal because you have one of the greatest players of his era and, and dependable players of his era just got confused. In his 20-year career, Marshall recovered a record 28 opponents' fumbles, including one in 1964, when he scooped up the ball and ran his way to infamy. Not many players have nicknames based on a gaffe. Wrong way, Marshall. Jim Marshall is running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way. Well, Jim, 20-year career, how would you like to have the nickname Wrong Way? Wrong Way Marshall was unique, but his nickname wasn't. That honor belongs to Cal Center Roy Regals, who first earned the Wrong Way moniker with his backward dash in the 1929 Rose Bowl. Did Roy Regals get tackled? After Marshall's infamous run, Regal sent the Vikings defensive lineman a note that read, Welcome to the club. Okay. So here, here's the two stories, though. You notice, wrong way, Marshall, when he runs to the end zone, there's no one 40 yards around, and the 49ers aren't. They're, they're just watching. Like, this is fantastic. And I love he runs in and throws the football. Yeah. The difference is, and the other, guy, the other guy has a teammate, run him down. And you love, wouldn't you love to be on the sideline? Listen, I'm going, stop, turn around. And he runs, and right before he gets to the end, end zone, he grabs him and literally kind of swings him back. I think he ends up tackling him is how it actually happened. A humorous illustration. But the question is, like when we talk about lovingly telling the truth, we've got to, have, we've got to be the person running the person down. Chasing after him, saying, hey, man, you're going the wrong way. This doesn't end well for you at all. We need the picture of the 20s rather than wrong way, Marshall. Here's the fourth thing. We've got to be willing to let the friendship go. I said fight for the friendship. Absolutely. But a relationship goes two ways. And you may come across someone who says to you, listen, Stop. Listen, I'm not going that direction. I'm not turning around. Listen, leave me alone. And they start creating more and more shared stories with other people, turning down opportunities to share stories with you. 
You cannot sacrifice truth for grace. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. They're both. And so you have to realize that you may have to lose the relationship, not by your choice, but by theirs, and realize that that may be what's best. That's hard. When we say lose a relationship, it doesn't mean when they walk away, you close the door, never to open again. Your door is always open. You're always loving them, always pursuing them, but realizing they may choose the relationship goes away. But you don't compromise truth in order for that. Full of grace, full of truth. I've told stories before about Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, if, you, if you Google them, be careful because you you'll get pictures and images that are, that are not, uh, not ones you'd like to see. Westboro Baptist Church, they've kind of, kind of moved out of the news some. I think the pastor, and I use that phrase loosely, who was leading the church, I believe passed away. Uh, but they, were, they, they would go out as a church, and I should use that word loosely as well, but they would go out and like picket funerals of homosexual men or women. Like there'd be a, somebody's lost a, a, a loved one, and they would take signs out that say God hates and derogatory names for people who are homosexual. And they would do all kinds of things, just, man, just angry people. And what they would, what they would say when... People would look at them and go, how are you a church? They would lean heavily, heavily on truth. Now, they skewed the truth. God doesn't hate people. He loves people. We saw that last week. But God's design for marriage and sexuality is very clear. Very clear in Scripture. And so they, they took this truth and they leveraged it as a weapon. Truth bombs, like we talked about earlier. You also have some churches that are, are the other side. And they say, and we take this issue of sexuality and things like that, they go, well, the Bible says this, but we're going to interpret it in such a way that leans so heavily on grace that truth disappears. And they go, hey, we're affirming of anything and everything. But there's a middle way that's not over-graced and over-truth. It's full of grace and truth. And I love the story of uh, a church, it was a church in Atlanta, and they had gotten in the news because the pastor had done a sermon talking about uh, marriage and biblical sexuality. And, you know, anytime you say something that's, that's different than the world's narrative, you know, you get hammered. Like, you know, Chick-fil-A, you know, Chick-fil-A hates people if you read many news articles or Twitter feeds because they're affirming of biblical marriage. Chick-fil-A doesn't hate people. That, that's the narrative that gets spun because Chick-fil-A says, hey, we're for uh, a husband and wife being married, and we want to put money towards that and, and letting that message. They're tagged as like that they hate homosexuals and things like that, which they don't. But this church had done something like that, and so people in the community decided to come picket the church that Sunday morning because it was going to get them in the news, get the, their message spread. Church wasn't like Westboro Baptist Church. They were just holding to biblical truth, doing it in a loving way. Here's what the church did and how they responded. As people were picketing on a cold fall winter morning they took coffee and donuts out to the picketers and they they just engaged them started talking not 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 arguing not trying to convince and and obviously most of the picketers were angry <coughs> and and didn't want to have conversation especially when coffee and donuts and love kind of was opposed to what they were trying to create but that was a better picture of being full of grace and truth that says you know what we'll talk 
We'll tell you what we believe and why we believe it. But while we do it, even though you're angry and you're mad at us, let's have some coffee and donuts and talk about it because it's cold out here. And you have people in your life that are headed the wrong way. We're called by God to intervene. We're his ambassadors. But we have to figure out how to be like Jesus, full of grace, full of truth, because that's what our friends and people in our relationships we're going to have a few minutes to talk about that. It's 11.30 right now, but we'll take 15 minutes or so to talk about it. Um, where is the clipboard? Is it full or do we still have spots? Okay, so we're good. Um, and if you can just, I did not ask this question, but I would say if you could have, the food is going to be, uh, <coughs> the meal is going to be in the gym at 7.45. So if you could bring it up before that. I, somebody's going to go, what time do you want me to bring it? Um, my food generally comes from Taco Bell, so it's just ready when I get it. Um, you people that, I, I, I'm burning pasta left and right, like those people. So I don't know, we just, they're going to need it at 745. You, if it needs to stay warm, you can bring it and something, I guess, and plug it in the kitchen, things like that. Um, and just, if you have questions, let me know. I'll figure out those answers. So let me pray for you and let you talk about grace and truth. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight not just today as we talk for a few minutes, but this week as we talk to our kids about grace and truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In your parent yap, you have a, some of you, you don't have to have the yap for this, somebody can, but in the parent yap, there's some questions. One of them this week I think is, who is the most graceful person you know? Who is the person that leans in and tells you truth the most? Have some of those conversations with your kids. They're there for you.